0: C.S. Lewis wrote this great book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In it, he tells a story of four children who go to a magical place, a place in a, maybe a different dimension, a different world called Narnia. And they go to this place, and they meet somebody wonderful there. He's a lion, a great lion, a, an amazing lion, uh, creature, uh, the source of life, the, uh, somebody whose who's presence with them transforms everything, does something amazing to that world that they live in. The children are happy, they, they, they find him wonderful, they, they um, have many adventures um, in this place and they grow to love Aslan. They love this lion who has so much power, so much grace, um, so much um, mystery, so much danger even. But there's a an excellence about Aslan. There is a glory about Aslan, a beauty about Aslan. One night, on the eve of a great battle against the forces of, of darkness against the the evil characters in the story they're preparing for this battle but they can't the children can't sleep they feel like something dreadful is going to happen maybe to him or maybe to us or maybe he's going to do something dreadful they wake up from the the, the pavilion, the tents that they are sleeping in, the, the two children, the, excuse me, the two girls do, and they decide to go outside and take a look around and find Aslan. Here's what they found. The girls, uh, quietly, the two girls groped their way among the other sleepers and crept out of the tent The moonlight was bright and everything was quite still, except for the noise of the river chattering over the stones. Then Susan suddenly caught Lucy's arm and said, look, on the far side of the camping ground, just where the trees began, they saw the lion slowly walking away from them into the wood. Without a word, they both followed him. He led them up The steep slope out of the river valley and then slightly to the right, apparently by the very same route which they had used that afternoon and coming from the hill of the stone table. On and on he led them into dark shadows and out into pale moonlight, getting their feet wet with the heavy dew. He looked somehow different from the Aslan they knew. His tail and his head hung low and he walked slowly as if he were very, very tired. Then when they were crossing a wide open place where there were no shadows for them to hide in, he stopped and looked round. It was no good trying to run away, so they came toward him. When they were closer, he said, Oh, children, children, why are you following me? We couldn't sleep, said Lucy, and then felt sure that she need say no more and that Aslan knew all they had been thinking. Please, may we come with you wherever you're going? Asked Susan. Well, said Aslan, and seemed to be thinking. Then he said... I should be glad of company tonight. Yes, you may come, if you will promise to stop when I tell you, and after that leave me to go on alone. Oh, thank you, thank you, and we will, said the two girls. Forward they went again, and one of the girls walked on each side of the lion. But how slowly he walked, and his great royal head drooped so that his nose nearly touched the grass. Presently he stumbled and gave a low moan. "'Aslan, dear Aslan,' said Lucy, "'what is wrong? Can't you tell us? "'Are you ill, dear Aslan?' asked Susan. "'No,' said Aslan, "'I am sad and lonely. "'Lay your hands on my mane "'so that I can feel you are there "'and let us walk like that.'" And so the girls did what they would never have dared to do without his permission. But what they had longed to do ever since they first saw him, buried their cold hands in the beautiful sea of fur and stroked it and so doing walked with him. And presently they saw that they were going with him up the slope of the hill on which the stone table stood. They went up at the side where the trees came farthest up, and when they got to the last tree, it was one that had some bushes about it. Aslan stopped and said, "'Oh, children, children,' Here you must stop, and whatever happens, do not let yourselves be seen. Farewell. And both the girls cried bitterly. They hardly knew why, and clung to the lion and kissed his mane and his nose and his paws and his great sad eyes. Then he turned from them and walked out onto the top of the hill, and Lucy and Susan, crouching in the bushes, looked after him, and this is what they saw. Oh, I'd love to read the rest of it, I'd love to just keep on reading, but this is what they saw. The stone table wasn't empty. The hill wasn't empty. There was a great crowd of evil creatures waiting, and the lion walked slowly up towards the table, and the white witch from, of the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, was there to receive Aslan. And what they did to him was horrible. Tied him up. They beat him. They cut off his mane. They put him to death on the stone table. What a wonderful, encouraging story for this Sunday morning, is it not? The story of... Aslan, the story of the Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe tells us something, I think, very um, pertinent about the passage, about the story that we have before us, that we've been looking at for many weeks. You can sense the dread, the trouble, the ominous future that Aslan, the lion, was facing. And here, in our Gospel of John, as we've been reading through this, we've seen how Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Jesus said, I am with you a short time. I am leaving you. And where I am going, you cannot come. Children, children, you must wait here. Whatever you do, don't let yourself be seen. Jesus said, Where I'm going, you cannot come. Oh, but you will follow eventually. You will follow eventually. But he said to them, I will come again. I will come again. What circumstances was Jesus facing? His imminent death, right? his suffering, the pain that he would be going through, crucified on the cross, put to death there, what circumstances might you be facing yourself? Fear of the unknown, of the future? Troubling past? Troubling present? We're all facing something. I've had so many conversations with many of you, (laughs) and I've heard the stories the troubling circumstances that we live in, Jesus wants to give peace in those circumstances. And we are there, or we come to Him to receive peace. And that's what this message is all about. I think that's what this last paragraph of chapter 14 is all about. Verse 27, He said, Peace I leave with you. That was his farewell to them. Peace I leave with you. Peace, my peace I give to you. Peace is not just an absence of war. Not just an absence of turmoil. Not just getting rid of the struggles. No more struggles. No more anxiety. Yes, get rid of all that stuff. No more pain. No more tumors. Okay, no more sickness. Let's get rid of all so I can have peace. The peace that Jesus gives is not necessarily a promise that all of our circumstances will change, but that His presence will be with us in every one. That He will provide His supernatural comfort in the midst of those circumstances. Peace was a greeting of the time. They spoke it to one another. Peace upon you when they when they met, and they would say, peace be upon you when they left. They were, they were using, the, the, using that word as an, as an expression of the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word, shalom. You've heard that word, I'm sure, shalom. It's a wonderful word, in fact. I think we ought to use it more often. But it doesn't just mean the absence of war. It means the presence of wholeness. The presence of well-being. The presence of settledness, maybe. The world offers peace. Jesus said, Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Not as the world gives. The world will offer peace. Through violence. Through coercion through political means. We can give you peace. We can provide peace in our time. More security. More cameras. More police. More armies. We, we can guarantee peace. And maybe there's a place for each and every one of those. I'm not here to argue for or against any of those things. But I'm saying the way the world tries to gain peace or the way the world offers peace is quite different than the way Jesus does. It cannot give real, lasting peace. Our peace, where does it come from? We're going to look at this passage in more depth. But it comes from Jesus. He is the source of our peace. In fact, our peace is secured not in the way the world did, through violence, But our peace was secured by a man, an innocent man, having violence done against him. He faced trouble. He faced the fear of death. He faced violence so that those things, although we may go through them, will have no effect on us. They will have no effect lasting effect on us. They cannot, they cannot and will not separate us from God the Father. I had a friend this week, a friend this week who posted, I didn't ask permission um, to, uh, to uh, share, um, but... Um, or maybe I was, maybe I was gonna I was, maybe I was going reference this l- later but I didn't ask her permission to share this but she posted it on Facebook in the for pub for everyone to see so um, anyway she had a a backpack or laptop books and or Kindle that had all of her school stuff in it stolen and and uh, she said you know she said a few things about it, how disappointed she was and it was kind of a scary situation to have something like that stolen out of her vehicle. Um, But then she said this, Jesus brings lasting peace and joy. (laughs) She said, despite any circumstances, he is my hope, my safety. The reason I can give that thief mercy because Jesus once gave such mercy to me. Peace. Peace. I'm going to show you from this passage how we receive peace. First of all, we receive peace through the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit. We sang about that earlier today. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, if you're in your Bibles, or your devices, you, I'll just reference the verses, point them out to you, take a look at them as I'm preaching These things I have spoken to you, verse 25, while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. We receive peace through the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit here is sent by the Father in the name of Jesus. God Himself is a sending God. He sent the Son into the world, and He sends the Spirit to us. Uh, Jesus Himself also sends the Spirit. So it's some kind of a mutual thing. In the coming weeks, we'll be in chapter 16. We'll see there, Jesus says... Um, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. God the Father, God the Son, sends the Holy Spirit to us. And then in turn, at the end of John's Gospel, we see Jesus saying to His disciples, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And then He sends us. He sends us. The Holy Spirit, though, will come to us in Jesus' name. Meaning that he represents Jesus. He is his emissary, his ambassador. He speaks what Jesus says to speak. He speaks his words. So when our president sends an ambassador ambassador to Libya, uh, that ambassador in Libya speaks what the president says to say. He doesn't have his own agenda. He doesn't... He doesn't speak his own words. He doesn't make things up as he goes along. No, these are the policies. These are the rules. These are the words of the, the nation that I represent, of the president that I am an ambassador of, and I speak what he says, and that's what the Holy Spirit does. In Jesus' name the Holy Spirit is sent. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus spoke many things. In fact, um, just bear with me uh, as, I, as I go down this list. Uh, what did Jesus say and teach? Well, he said many things. We talked a little bit about this last week. But just think of the things that he said and taught them in the last two chapters. In the course of this, this, of this Last Supper discourse, this farewell address, he told them that they should serve one another. That they should wash one another's feet. That they, he told them that he would be betrayed. He told them that he will be glorified and that God will be glorified. He told them that he was leaving. He told them that he would come back. He told them that they should love one another. He told them that He is going to prepare a place for them. He told them that they should not be troubled, that they should not fear. He told them that they should believe in Him. He told them that He is one with the Father. The Father is in me and I in the Father. He told them that they will do greater works than what Jesus did. He told them that the Holy Spirit is coming. He told them that they should love Jesus by obeying Him. That's just a few. I I bet you could extrapolate many more things. Jesus told them those things while he was with them. Only a short time. He was only going to be there a short time. He wouldn't be with them long, but the Holy Spirit would come to them. The Holy Spirit would teach them, would bring to remembrance all that Jesus said. And that's what He did in the first generation. The Holy Spirit taught. He reminded them of what Jesus said. That's why we have the New Testament. We have the Gospels. We have them written down. We have the Apostles teaching. Because the Holy Spirit was inspiring them to, to write and record these words. That's what, that's, why, that's what we call the doctrine of inspiration. The, the Scriptures were inspired by, breathed out by God through the Holy Spirit. But now the Holy Spirit comes to us and, and He still reminds us of what we taught. How do you think that in a conversation with our sister, I'd say, you know, meditate on Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Because the Holy Spirit has helped me to hide God's Word in my heart and, is, and reminds me of those things when I need to share them. We call that illumination. Illumination. Jesus, or excuse me, the Holy Spirit, gives us understanding of the Scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and He reminds us of them. He illuminates the Scriptures to us so that we can apply them in every part of our lives. I think we ought to persevere in in the Scriptures more often. We ought to persevere in reading and studying. My, um, My discipleship group, the men that I meet with, um, We've been challenged recently to, st- to read God's Word more, haven't we? We're reading this book called Desiring God. And um, in it, he has a chapter on the Scripture, the Bible, and its benefit to us and how, how we can receive so much joy and peace from it. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. He gives us the Holy Spirit to remind us of His Word that's already been recorded. He does that. He gives us the Bible. What, we ought to persevere in reading it, not give up on it. Because in it, we can increase our knowledge of God. We can increase our knowledge of Jesus and His ways for us. And we give the Spirit opportunity to empower our lives and give us joy. Uh, speaking of desiring God, um, John Piper wrote this about God's Word. The Spirit inspired the Word and therefore goes where the Word goes. The more of God's Word you know and love, the more of God's Spirit you will experience. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I believe that. So I struggle every day to be in the Word. It's not easy. Nothing's easy. Nothing's easy that's worth doing, that brings benefit, that brings joy. We, there are a lot of easy things we could do, but the joy in doing those things fades away so quickly. Lasting peace through the presence of the Holy Spirit in God's Word, illuminating God's Word to us. How do we go from that presence of the Holy Spirit onto joy? <laughs> joy? Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He repeats a command that he gave at the beginning of chapter 14. <laughs> let not your hearts be troubled. Because they needed that reminder. They need to re, remi- needed to be reminded that the, anecdot- the antidote excuse me, for trouble and fear is the peace of God that passes all understanding, that guards their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 7. He says, you heard me say, I'm going away and I will come to you. Well, they were troubled by that. He's going away, I'm troubled by that. I will come to you. Well, they're a- afraid. Uh, will he really come back? Will he come back? How do we know he's going to come back? What proof do we have that he's going to come back? He said this, if you loved me, we talked about love last week. Love, uh, love by obeying, the way of love, right? But he says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. You would have had joy. I'm telling you, I'm telling you I'm going, you should have rejoiced. Why would we rejoice in Jesus leaving our presence? Perhaps perhaps we, we don't understand and they didn't understand that we receive peace by rejoicing in the glory of Jesus. In the glory of Jesus. Their love for Him. They, they loved Jesus. They loved Him. But He said, if you, ha- if you had loved me, <laughs> as if they didn't, what He meant was, oh, you love, but you love to a certain point. You love Jesus to a certain point, but as soon as your concerns come to the surface, you stop loving me. And then you start choosing differently. They were concerned with their own loss. That's what they were concerned. They were troubled, so they didn't rejoice because they loved Jesus to a certain extent. We love you, Jesus, as long as you're present with us. We love you as long as you're making my life good. As long as everything's roses in my life, I love you. They had no thought to what was going to happen to Jesus. And what he would, what he would experience when he went to the Father. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than me. What was He going to do when He got to the Father? Well, he's going to prepare a place for us. Yes, He's going to send the Holy Spirit. Yes, He's going to go to the Father to be glorified. He was going to go to the Father and experience the glory with which He had, the, the glory He had with the Father from the beginning. So He was going to be in glory with His heavenly Father and and the disciples were more concerned with their own sense of loss than the glory that Jesus would receive. So we rejoice in the glory of Jesus and in that sense, we receive peace from Him. He says, why? Why to the Father? For the Father is greater than I. It's not because Jesus is lesser or inferior to the Father, but it's because He subordinated Himself to the Father. We call this functional subordination. It's not actual. He's not lesser, but He makes Himself lesser. He chooses to be lesser. He lowers Himself before the Father. Why? So He can come down to earth. Born as a little baby. We're going to celebrate that in a month and a half born as a baby, experiencing all that we experience, all of the weakness, all of the difficulty, all of the pain and the suffering of a human life. To experience that for us in order to bring us to God. The Father is greater than the Son in the sense that the Father is not the one who humbled himself, but the Son did. The Son humbled himself to do that for us. Remember my friend I mentioned who lost um, her laptop or Kindle or backpack. Remember what she said. He is my hope and my safety. Jesus brings lasting peace and joy. Lasting peace and joy. Not as the world gives. Not as the world gives, but Jesus gives lasting peace and joy. What circumstances are you facing? What troubles, what fears, do you have joy in the midst of them? If you're like me, you probably don't. You're so worked up by all of this stuff that you're going through, you're wondering, how in the world is this going to turn out? How am I going to get through this? Do you have peace? Perhaps you need to rejoice in God's glory. Perhaps we, you need to turn your attention to His greatness. Get your eyes above the problems and, and see things from a higher vantage point. See Jesus for who He is and see all that He has done for you. Usually this comes, um, this comes down to a question of faith. Do you believe what He has done for you? Do you believe? Do you have faith or trust in Him? Or do you believe that, or do, and do you believe that only through Him can you have lasting peace and lasting joy? See, anything less than that, kind of, that kind of confidence, is unbelief. Anything less than that confidence that no matter what I'm going through, I can trust Jesus. Anything less than that is unbelief. Or misplaced belief. Belief that Our circumstances have power over us. Belief that the enemy has power over us. Belief that we'll never be good enough to get through these circumstances. Do you believe that? Put that right out. That's what Jesus is saying. I told you before it takes place, he said in verse 29, so that when it does take place, you may believe. So that you may believe. Our circumstances don't control us. Our mistakes, our sins don't define us. Christ does. Christ defines us and He asks us to believe. He told these things to the disciples so that later on, when they all came true, they would realize He was right the whole time. We can trust Him. We can believe Him. We can put our faith in Him. How do we know? <laughs> Verse 30, he said this. I will no longer talk much with you. He does, he's doing a lot of talking here, isn't he? <laughs> For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. (laughs) We receive peace because Jesus has already, because of what, excuse me, what Jesus has already done in loving obedience to the Father. Jesus did what the Father commanded, Jesus obeyed the Heavenly Father. That's how we know we can have peace. Because He's already done it. No longer, He says, no longer will will I talk with you. He, He meant by that that His time was short. He had a limited amount of time left. Just like our lives. How much time do you have left? Anybody know? Any, anyone have any clue? Um, I'm not going to recommend this movie because there was some language in it. But I did watch this one film. It's kind of weird. It's called. It was a little independent movie called Timer. And it's this kind of weird, sort of futuristic movie. But it's it was kind of a suppose the world was like this that you were able to. Or that you were born with or you received or something, a timer. Or your, no, I think it was at some point in your life, your timer came on. There was this timer on your wrist. And it would tell you exactly how much time you had left. And you would know, okay, that's how much time I have left. And maybe you could recharge it a little bit or say, I don't know, some weird thing. Anyway, but this one person, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how much left time I have left until this happens. Um, I might be getting the stories mixed up. Actually, I think it was that the timer was the time you would have until you met the person you were going to fall in love with or something. Anyway, but whatever the case, imagine, you're, you imagine you've got a timer that's setting your, your destiny. And that's what you have left to work with, whether it's before, before meeting the person you're going to fall in love with or before the time runs out and you're dead. There's another film like that. It was like that. That's not what we have. We don't have that. We have no idea. Jesus knew. He said, My time, my hour has come. I know when it's going to happen. The ruler of the world is coming. The enemy, Satan, the accuser. He was coming in the sense that he was going to rejoice himself over Jesus' death. Jesus would die. Satan would have his day. But he said... He has no claim on me. And in the original language, there's actually a double negative, which we don't like in English, and so you're not going to see that here. But there's this double negative in in the original language that's an emphatic, it's not going to happen. No way does he have a claim on me. No way does he have power over me. No way does he have me. Why? Why? Well, because first of all, Jesus was sinless. He lived a perfect sinless life. Satan accuses us of sin. He accuses us. He's the accuser. But he could not accuse Jesus because Jesus had never sinned. He does accuse us, doesn't he? And and we oftentimes listen to him. He tells us, oh, well, you're wicked. Oh, well, you're unfaithful. Or, well, you've sinned like this and you've sinned like that. And he accuses us. In that way, he tries to gain control over us. Tries to gain power over us. Tries to make a claim on us. He could not do that with Jesus because of his sinlessness. But also because Jesus himself had power over sin and death. Jesus himself had power over sin and death, so the devil had no claim on him. Jesus, in fact, laid his life down willingly. He walked the path up the hill to his own death. And he did it willingly. He said in John ten, seventeen, and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I lay it down of my own accord. Why? Obedience to the Father. Because the Father had commanded him. And he loved the Father. He learned, the writer of Hebrews says, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It's interesting to think of Jesus learning things, but it was essentially what he meant by that is he experienced obedience. All that it means to be obedient through what He suffered. Hebrews 12.2 then says that Jesus who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There was joy waiting for Him on the other side of the pain and the suffering, the glory of being in the presence of God and He loved the Father and He obeyed the Father willingly to do what God has sent him. That that was the way of love that we talked about a a week or so ago. So, in a sense, here in verses 30 and 31, Jesus is our example. (laughs) He's our example of, if you love me, you will obey my commandments or you will keep my commandments. Because that's what Jesus did himself in his relationship to the Father. He's an example, yes. And we should, re- we should be reminded of that. But He's also our way. Jesus doing this was the way. He is the way to have joy in His glory. In fact, He's the way for us to be obedient as well. He is the way in order for us to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. He is the way for us to receive peace. Because He suffered. Because He faced trouble and fear. We can stand in any situation. Faith in Him. Joy in Him. Peace with Him. For His sake, He made Him to be sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, He was sinless. He was perfect. So that in Him, faith in Him, and the Holy Spirit's with us, presence with us, we might become the righteousness of God. <laughs> so, what is our joy? What is our joy in suffering through this? What is our joy in going through all of the trials? How can we receive peace in that? Knowing that His righteousness is our righteousness. So that no matter how much we've screwed up, so no matter how much the situations of our life um, surround us, we know that our future is secure. We know that we will be with Him. Remember Aslan? <laughs> Going through the suffering and the, the horror. But after, the, after his death, on the stone table. The creatures of evil and wickedness and the witch herself, they all left. They departed and went off to wage war on Aslan's people. The girls remained in hiding. And then they came up and and saw him lying there, his great dead body, mutilated, humiliated. Little mice came and crawled all over his body. What are they doing? They said. Get them off of there. Wait, don't you see what, what they're doing? They're they're chewing at the ropes. They're trying to untie him. The poor things, they, they think that that they can help him get loose and that he'll wake up. They don't realize he's dead. And the girls cleared away the ropes and Azan looked more like himself without them. Every moment his dead face looked nobler as the light grew and they could see it better. It was beginning to be morning. In the wood behind them a bird gave a chuckling sound. It, It had been so still for hours and hours that it startled them. Then another bird answered it. Soon there were birds singing all over the place. It was quite definitely early morning now, not late night. I'm so cold, said Lucy. So am I, said Susan. Let's walk about a bit. They walked to the eastern edge of the hill and looked down. The one big star had almost disappeared. The country all looked dark gray. But beyond, at the very end of the world, the sea showed pale. The sky began to turn red. They walked to and fro more times than they could count between the dead Aslan and the eastern ridge, trying to keep warm and oh, how tired their legs felt. Then at last, as they stood for a moment, looking out toward the sea and Caraparavel, which they could now just make out, the red turned to gold along the line where the sea and the sky met, and very slowly up came the edge of the sun. At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. What's that? Said Lucy, clutching Susan's arm. I, I feel afraid to turn around, said Susan. Something awful is happening. They're doing something worse to him, said Lucy. Come on. And she turned, pulling Susan round with her. The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All colors and shadows were changed that for a moment they didn't see the important thing. Then they did. The stone table was broken into two pieces by a great crack that ran down it from end to end and there was no Aslan. Oh, 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 cried the two girls rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it? cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic, they looked round. There, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, for it had apparently grown again, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. "'Aren't you dead, then, dear Aslan?' said Lucy. "'Not now,' said Aslan. "'You're not... not a...' asked Susan in a shaky voice. She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. "'Do I look it?' he said. you're real you're real oh aslan cried lucy and both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses but what does it all mean asked susan when they were somewhat calmer it means said aslan that though the witch knew the deep magic that there or there is a deeper magic still which she did not know her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Oh, well... Then it goes on from there. And the joy and the peace of experiencing their Lord, Aslan, was greater than a little story could describe. There is a deeper magic. The enemy thinks that he has a claim on us. But there was one who died in our stead who was sinless. No treachery was found in Him. And in that, in that death that Jesus experienced for us, time did begin to work backwards. And we are living in that. Living in, a, in an age in which we can put our faith and trust in what Jesus did that moment in time, in history, for our sake. And live in peace. Lasting peace. Lasting joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.